But every patient, when they go through chemotherapy, for example, they will receive a, a sheet from that's based off their, their, you know, say for example, New South Wales Health um, from the hospital. And that will give a plan of what the chemotherapy cycles will be, what they're expected to do. And that allows you to factor that into your treatment program. It's also important that when you initially hand that sheet to the patient with that plan and that outline of what you'd like to do, and they take it to their oncologist to talk about, that the oncologist, you have your details written on there. And you also ask the um, patient to communicate with the GP. And in that letter, you may provide that you'd like to communicate with the oncologist in the future. Many times I see, it doesn't necessarily happen with the first one. It's the first time you've worked with that oncologist. Normally it's the second or third time. Um, they start to just copy you straight into the pathology and the pathology starts to come straight through to you. Welcome to the Metagenics Best Practice Podcast, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. Practitioner to practitioner conversations to inspire and mentor you in your own professional journey. Join Angela Carroll as she meets with practitioners from around Australia and New Zealand and hears how they work, live and grow in the natural medicine field. How is managing cancer different to other conditions in practice? What considerations do you need to take on with medical cancer therapy and complementary medicine? How do you work with oncologists and the patient care team? These are just some of the questions I asked Stuart Houghton. And of course, there's the mental health for all involved aspect. Having a dedicated oncology focus in practice is no mean feat. As cancer rates increase and people are becoming aware of the supportive role of complementary medicine, practitioners are seeing more patients for integrative oncology than ever before. Listen in and show yourself up to give you confidence and your patients the best care you can. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. I'm Angela Carroll, your host. And today I'm interviewing Stuart Houghton. Now, Stuart Houghton's not shy to the Standing on the Shoulders of Podcasts, <laughs> Standing on the Shoulders of Giants podcast. This is uh, his third appearance, and I just love talking to Stuart. And one of the things that stands out for me is his dedication to the cause and his absolute passion for the industry and his love of his patients. And today, the reason I wanted to have Stuart back again is because he has a large focus on his, in his practice on cancer and quite difficult um, conditions to, to manage from a practitioner perspective. Uh, and being in practice, these patients usually have a whole team of other experts behind them, uh, supporting them in their progress through to recovery. Um, and so it's not only a relationship when you're dealing with cancer patients and the like, it's not just a relationship between you and the patient, it's all of the other carers that go with it and all of the other emotional triggers that come from these high, um, high intensity types of diagnostics. So hi, Stu. Hi, Angela. How's uh, things in Sydney? Uh, we, I think we're, we're avoiding the, the COVID wave at the moment. But we're, um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Clinic's up and running full time at the moment. We're busy. Um, you know, we've got to enjoy it. Yeah. Just on that, actually, it's probably a good little uh, intro just so that practitioners can get a little bit of more insight into your practice. How, how did uh, COVID 
lockdown and so forth impact on your practice and your practice numbers and uh, the mood in the practice and your operation? Did, did you go down? Did you go up? What, what was actually happening there? The initial week of the, I guess you'd call it the lockdown or the restricted travel, um, we definitely saw a quietening in that first week, but we had never seen those numbers drop in the history of my, my practice in, in well over 10 years. And I believe that the main reason for that was people were unsure what they could and couldn't do. We had several patients pulled over by the police and questioned where they were going. Um, and I think that created a lot of anxiety for people. But after about one to, one to two weeks, by sort of week two, um, it started to change and we started to become busier than we ever were. Um, we had people just ringing constantly, calling, wanting appointments, wanting telehealth. Um, and when we saw this process starting, we, we got onto it very quickly and we did, you know, connect with our clients, our patients. We emailed them out. We set up programs for them, information um, on immune support, mental health programs that were available. And I think this created a, a change in the dynamic of how they could handle it and they could be prepared for what may, may occur. Nice. Well, well handled. With that, it's interesting because I've heard uh, you know, all sorts of different feedback. Some practitioners have been run off their feet. They've never been so busy, so stressed in their life. And then other practitioners just closed their doors and went, let's just see what happens. Mm. So it's, it's polarised, I think, uh, practitioners in the industry. Okay, so that's, that's good. So you, this morning you said you had uh, full books of new patients. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Yes, it was a, a, a very, very busy morning. We inundated. And, and what was interesting this morning was every single one of those new patients was a medical referral. Wow. Um, okay. That's good stuff because I want to talk about that with you. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. So um, were they all cancer patients? Is that, is that the lion's share of what you see? No, no, it wasn't. It, so this morning wasn't all cancer. We had one oncology-based patient, which was breast cancer. Mm. And then we had um, an ulcerative colitis patient as well that came through. We had another patient with um, psychological um, bipolar disorder that was sent in as well. Um, and these patients were sent in. The, the one with the bipolar was sent in because the doctor was concerned about all the supplements and the different things she was taking and she wanted someone who had experience in that industry to be able to tell the patient what was okay and what wasn't okay for her to be taking alongside her pharmaceuticals. The um, ulcerative colitis patient particularly, that was actually a referral from a um, immunologist um, where they're having difficulty with some of the immune medications as well and they wanted something that would also support that gastrointestinal tract. Um, and the oncology patient was actually an oncologist that I work with. Ah, themselves? Yes. Oh, no, no, it wasn't the oncologist, sorry, no. It was an oncologist that had referred right. one of their patients okay. through that was interested in integrative healthcare as a supportive mechanism for their treatment. Right. Okay. Um, today, I'd like to focus on cancer. Um, and the reason I'd like to focus on your cancer patients and the relationship you have with the support team and their families and so forth is because it's uh, one of those very emotionally driven um, disease states. 
And for a lot of practitioners, they can be a bit nervous about it and also feeling a little unsure of how to deal with the oncologists and working in with teams. Um, how, how did you, how did you get into this in particular? You know, did you, did you do specific skills? Did you, did you do training for cancer support or did you just jump in with both feet? Well, I didn't actually ever intend to become a, a naturopath that specializes in oncology. That was never, when I went and studied, I thought I would be working with digestive complaints and, and more along the lines of, of fitness and, and athletes. But what actually happened was um, when I, a basically a family member um, had a cancer scare, which sort of brought to my attention the minimal amount of evidence-based complementary support that's mm. actually available. Patients mm. going for oncology treatment. Um, this sort of drove me more than anything to educate um, myself really through seminars. I, I did a lot of online international educational events. Um, I studied a lot of online subjects as well. Um, quite often though, American universities and colleges that offered these additional subjects for, for healthcare practitioners. Um, and I really focused on sort of the chemotherapeutic pharmacology. So I'd understand a lot more, but because we seem to lack so much in the integrative healthcare industry in the way of oncology support, um, you had to really learn how to understand the research. And while we get a certain amount of evidence-based practice in our, our qualifications, um, one of my favorite subjects that I really wanted to go back and do because they changed over the last 20 years, they've really changed how research is, is analyzed. I went back and started studying those, those subjects and I really wanted to have a better grasp um, of being able to understand basically the quantitative and qualitative sort of and conceptual and methodological aspects of research. Um, and sort of by being able to understand these basic principles, um, it allowed me to utilize research in a clinical application and um, therefore improve patient outcomes and evidence-based practice. Well done. Proper treatment plan. Mm, mm. So it wasn't um, obviously with that, it wasn't something you took um took by halves at all it's like okay you know like i really need to upskill on this uh, you, you do you certainly do and i and i i think it's a, a a strong area that's quite um a very niche market but it's also a very weak area in integrative healthcare because it's a scary topic it's a very scary topic i remember when i studied remedial massage therapy you wouldn't massage it was you do not massage a patient with cancer um, and now it's a completely different approach. Now, depending on the cancer, of course, massage is actually quite often encouraged as a therapeutic benefit. Mm, mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think the nice thing is from, from when we started practice years and years ago, it's, it's cancer is no longer a death sentence. And it no. used to be seen that way. And so, but the fear is still there in society. It's still one of those big things that generates fear. So uh, now I loved, I love that you did those courses. Do you remember what any of those events or subjects or anything was in case anyone's listening where they could have um, a, a reference to that? I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but what I, I did do was I actually went through um, a lot of the American universities or colleges. I know there's some uh, opportunities at open universities oh, yeah. or I believe it is, they offer courses as well. Um, if you've studied in certain institutes or certain um, 
uh, universities, you can actually just go back and do certain subjects. And that's what I often did. There's quite a few courses that I enrolled in. I never finished the specific degrees in some of them. I went for them, for the subjects. Yeah. Yeah. More than anything. Yeah. You know, um, because we do need that education. We need to ensure that we're actually um, ascertaining that, that information correctly. Yeah, 100% with that. Uh, and I imagine that really filters down into how you interpret the reports and scans and, and everything else. Yeah. 100%. That's what's nice about the integrative approach versus the standard medical approach. It's, it's mm. while we look at symptoms in medical, we look at the cause mm. as an integrative healthcare practitioner. And, and they're the two things that really can pull us together if we, we utilise both of those aspects um, correctly. Yeah. So in, in your view from being in practice and seeing a lot of uh, oncology patients, how, how is cancer different to seeing patients with other chronic uh, acute illnesses? Um, what, are there essentials that you need to have in place? Are there things that you need to do differently? Are there uh, extra skills that you need to have, uh, extra tools in the practice you need to have? I think you already nailed it when you mentioned death and fear. Oncology sort of distinguishes itself generally due to the fact it induces fear in the patient. And that fear is normally death. While we shouldn't really consider any condition, symptom or disease um, as being greater of importance than the other, um, it is vital. Um, your supportive treatment is based on evidence-based practice. Mm. And your understanding of the pharmacology treatments around the like the oncology condition um, is a must before we can provide a supportive plan. You mm. need to understand what you're doing and, and how those drugs work um, to really be able to apply um, integrative healthcare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with, um, with your patients, you're talking about fear. I mean, I, let's just touch on the fear, double tap yeah. on the fear aspect of things. So with the fear, yes, fear of death, but there's also, I believe, a fear of pain, a fear of what the chemo will do to them, a fear of the hair falling out, the ego. My God, the ego takes a blow in that as well. Yeah, fear of suffering. That's the general consensus I get is a fear of suffering. And a, a patient, I'll give you a patient. She, um, she uh, was 49 uh, she, last year. She turns 50 this year. And she actually came to me several years ago and I actually, she came to me about a, a shoulder problem that she was experiencing in her left shoulder. And when I was palpating around the shoulder in the auxiliary, I felt some lumps and I was concerned about those lumps. And I actually advised her, I stopped treatment immediately. And I actually said to her quite nice, I said, look, I can feel some, some, some changes in this tissue around that area. Before I continue, I'd like you to go back to your GP and get the GP to have a look at it and possibly organize a couple of scans to see what they are. And she went back to the GP and the GP said, oh yes, I'm really concerned. I think we need to do some scans and rule out there's no cancer there. Um, in a nutshell, that patient um, locked up and they decided not to do anything about it. And she ended up turning back up on my door last year, two years later. 
Um, and the reason she turned back up was she actually went to an oncologist and the oncologist referred her back to me. Oh, wow. And she has been diagnosed with uh, grade four um, breast cancer. And the, the thing was, it was, it was a good example of what fear can do to someone because her fear wasn't about the cancer. Her fear was about treatment. And when she came to me, she hadn't started treatment yet. She, was, she hadn't had even the surgery yet. She'd only had the biopsies done. And we put together a program and a plan for her. And this plan allowed us to also explain to her, once we knew what chemotherapies they were using, how they worked and what they would do. And it's very important that that patient is educated in how those, those, those drugs actually work and what they are. And by providing that information, they have an expectation of what they may or may not be going through. Mm. What was wonderful about her was she should have lost all her hairs. Her skin should have become dry. Her nails should have become brittle. She didn't experience any of that. She lost a bit of hair. She thinned. We provided her with information on cold cap treatment. Um, we provided her a psychologist to go and see. Um, and, and all these poor background changed her perception. And she's now cancer-free. She finished her radiotherapy only a month ago. She feels fantastic. And she says, everyone, the nursing, everyone said to her, we can't believe you went through this so well. And she said the worst thing she was that she had a bit of a headache one day and felt a little bit nauseous one day. Mm. Mm. And that was the difference. Wow. And she wished she'd done it two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that that was plaguing the bottom, the back of her head for those two years while she was waiting to get into treatment. She was, but she had gone into denial and done nothing about it. Mm. It's a nice place, denial. <laughs> oh, it is wonderful. Head in the sand. <laughs> so, um, cancer, um, the drugs, you mentioned cold cap treatment. Can you explain that for listeners? Basically, they take the temperature of the, the scalp down and that actually reduces the amount of the chemotherapy that's going through to those hair follicles during that, that time. And in, in, in such, um, that reduces the effects it's going to have on the growth. I see a lot of chemos, how the chemotherapy works is they, they attack, many of them will attack rapidly dividing cells. And that represents both your hair follicles, your skin, your nails, gastrointestinal tract. So hence why cancer cells are also fast replicating cells. So the chemotherapy that's targeted towards those cells will also attack those, those cells, as well, the healthy cells as well. Therefore, you lose your hair. Right. Um, by using cold cap, you reduce that temperature load to that, that temperature to the area, reducing blood flow, therefore reducing the movement of the chemo to those cells as well. Hmm, nice. Um, they didn't have those around when I was uh, in practice, so that must be a newer type of therapy. Yeah, about, ten, about oh, maybe about ten years. I would say about around ten, fifteen years now. Oh, okay. Well, I was then in that case. All they, right. They, weren't, they sort of started probably. You can't quote me directly on this, but probably around fifteen years ago, maybe. Okay. They started seeing them in. They're very popular now with a lot right. of people. Okay, and and, and understandably. Yeah, understand. understand. It's all about maintaining a, a, a sense of self, really, and, and, and being able to maintain who you are and when you wake up in the morning still seeing that. Yeah. Um, they aren't always effective, but for some people, they're very effective. Nice. I like that. Um, with the drugs, while we're on the topic of the drugs and so forth, um, 
as practitioners, the message can be very confusing. One, one year you get, oh, you can use antioxidants and another year you get, no, you can't use antioxidants. And then other times you get, yeah, you can use it in between treatment and it's very confusing. How, how do you, how do you navigate that? And are there resources that you use for the herb nutrient drug interactions? Yes, yes. So, so it, it first off depends on the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy, surgery, etc. Depending on what you're actually the patient's going through at the time, um, there's a lot of controversy around antioxidants, and and really regarding that, it depends on how long that chemotherapy drug's going to work. So, you've got a couple of aspects you look at with any pharmaceutical. You look at the mechanism of action, how to inhibit. The drugs affect how to enhance the drugs effect and also the side effects as well and then you have to make a clinical decision on how is that patient being impacted by that drug is the drug working effectively enough isn't it working at all um, or are we getting so much side effect that the drug dosing needs to be dropped now certain nutraceuticals whether they're herbs or nutrients will improve and change that metabolism of that drug and it's really important that you're able to understand the, the metabolism pathways for both the drug and the nutritional and herbal nutraceutical initially to be able to prescribe it. Um, really, look, I, I'd say to you uh, and say to anyone listening to this, one of the great databases that I tend to really like is the Natural Medicines database. It's quite clear. It seems to be updated consistently. And you can actually really put into that any drug that you, you're using and the herb that you're using, and it will tell you everything about it. Um, and it will tell you the level of, um, you know, in which it might interact as well. Um, but again, it still comes down to being really able to understand those metabolism pathways and the cytochrome P450M zones. Mm. Um, do you take much consideration into people's polymorphisms or you know what's actually going on uh, time of day there's some research uh, coming out that for women going through breast cancer therapy if they fast um, and don't have anything to eat for the time prior to the chemo itself that they get better results um, there's also therapy showing depending on where the female is in her cycle as to what uh, the results are going to be as well with regards to the, the chemo radiation outcomes. Um, and so I'm just wondering whether there are other considerations you take into place. I think, I believe really, all of these are really depend on getting to know your patient first. You need to understand what your patient's capable at and where they're at at that moment they come in. If to, to be able to give any sort of advice, we can prescribe, and we, we know as practitioners, just in general, day to day, a patient could come in and you can say, you know, clearly they, they may need to lose weight, they may need to eat a better diet, they may need to exercise more, but change doesn't happen overnight. And if you're already going through chemotherapy and radiotherapy, that pressure can be quite significant. They're in a state of fear and anxiety. Um, we certainly don't want our patients um, to feel overwhelmed. So depending on how capable they are, you can, you can make any form of adjustment as long as it's specific to their needs um, as well as what their wants are. So 
Um, to really answer your question, you can. We do fasting with some of our patients. Some of our patients will do a keto, a ketogenic diets that are more specific to cancer, um, not your standard weight loss, um, ketogenic that is. Um, so it really depends on the individual patient and really analyzing the lifestyle and their diet. You do not want to make any dramatic changes to their lifestyle if they've been eating a certain way, because the last thing you need to do is put a patient into detox while they're trying to go through chemotherapy. Makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I saw a, uh, a TV, a documentary series um, and it was, I think 10 episodes and they interviewed all of these people who'd gone through cancer and come out, you know, survived, come out on top and it was their journey. Uh, and the researchers through there were interviewed at the same time and they all said, it doesn't matter what the diet is that you put them onto as long as they change their diet. You know, as long as they make a positive change in the diet, um, it does, it's keto is not the diet of choice. You know, it's, it's not gluten-free. It's not, it's not a particular diet for cancer as a general, but it's the change in the diet that brings the, 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 the benefit. And that's it, Angela. It might be as simple as just, you know, <laughs> removing the alcohol. It might just be cutting that back for them. It might be just a gradual change. Same with a lot of my patients who come to me for weight loss. If they want to lose weight, that's fantastic. But if I change their diet rapidly, the level of commitment they're going to have to that is going to become overwhelming. And in a very short space of time, they'll fall off the wagon. Where if I start with just changing their breakfast and I get their breakfast right, and once they've got that into routine and we get them back and we get their, their snack right mid-morning and then we work on lunch, and we work on afternoon snack and we work on dinner. Before you know it, it's been a gradual change. It's been easier for them because by the time you get to each next meal plan, you've already locked one in and it becomes a, a, a routine. And it's the same thing. You don't just go through chemotherapy and you're, you're better. It's a, it's a lifestyle change that has to occur long-term. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What, um, what, do you have a favourite? Do, do you have a favourite uh, formulation or a favourite concoction that you create to reduce the side effects that are associated with chemo, radiotherapy? Oh, there's no one thing that will work better mm -hmm. in any specific, because every person's different, every person's better. But from an ingredient point, I don't think you can get past either your medicinal mushrooms or your curcumin. I think they're two of my most favourite um, ingredients that I'm going to use at all yeah. times. Excellent. So if, mm. if you think, I'll just, just to give you a bit of an example, if you have a patient undergoing say radiotherapy for oral cancer, ultimately we want to enhance the sensitivity of the cancer cell, but also minimize the side effects. You know, you, um, in this sort of case, um, you could use curcumin, um, which can be used to both, promote the radiosensitivity to the cancer cell. And that happens generally by inhibiting um, the radio uh, radiation-induced nuclear factor kappa B activation, and then having a, a protective effect against the mucositis that will occur in the oral cavity. Mm. So you've got a, a, a something that's going to work in both ways, but also, you know, overall, we know what curcumin can do. And we've seen the BCM95 studies on depression and mood. So you're hitting multiple aspects immediately. Do you have dosing considerations? When I say dosing, I don't mean quantity. I mean, um, 
mediums. So for example, the turmeric, are you giving that as the fresh grated? Are they drinking a tea of it? Are they gargling it? What are they, what are they doing with you? How do you do your turmeric? I think it's about compliance. So in most cases we want to get to a therapeutic level. Um, you know, again, I normally will go with a supplementation. Fresh food is a, is a major factor. And we provide all our patients with dietary advice. Um, we also do diet plans, but when it comes to things like curcumin, that takes time and effort and they don't always feel like that. So quite often it's about improving that um, compliance aspect. And that might be using something like your BCM95 or your C3 complex, which is going to ramp up that um, anti-inflammatory effects, support the patient in a simple um, dose. And that's as easy as taking that, you know, maybe three, four times a day. And you do that as a tablet? As a tablet, yes. <clears throat> okay, all right, cool. I was just thinking if those people that have difficulty swallowing tablets when they've got that far into their treatment. If they're already, if they're already experiencing that, you can break those tablets up. You know, you actually often. grind down in a mortar and pestle that, so that's yeah. yeah. Or you can get a capsule and you can break the capsule open and throw it into a smoothie. Yep, nice one, nice one. Okay, so you mentioned before when I was asking about resources for herb drug interactions, the natural medicines database is that your primary place for you? One of my favorites. Yes, okay, yes. Awesome. What about um, dosing with regards to, you know, like some some some, how can I explain it? Um, do you use singles? Effectively, what I'm asking you is, so do you use single um, nutrients? Do you use compounding? Do you do, um, do you take any, like, into account, oh, they need lower amounts of this particular vitamin and more of this particular nutrient? So do you get that specific with it? Yes, we do. We do. <laughs> and it depends on the individual. We look at those uh, it, classic symptomatology and diagnosis in naturopathic, nutritional, herbal medicine um, is still a paramount aspect to address. Um, we wanna make sure that we, we get the dosing right. We don't wanna give them more than they need, um, but we wanna ensure that we're actually addressing um, the drivers for them as well and improve and reduce their symptoms at the same time. Yep. So yeah, that might be, we will compound phosphate, um, the active bees, we'll do the magnesium, We'll do that quite often also in liquid form as well, especially if it is coming to a point of sensitivity where we don't have as much of the excipient in the product. Um, we'll also use um, classic herbal medicine, everything from dried herbs, teas, right down to your, your, your typical liquids and tinctures as well. Nice. And so with, with uh, therapies that you're using, do you use other therapies as well, like uh, IV vitamin C, photobiomodulation, any of that stuff, or do you leave that to someone else? I normally refer that on. You know, I, I, I'm trained in multiple disciplines, um, particularly the one that I'll, I'll, wait, I'll move over to more than anything is the kinesiology side, um, particularly the NET, uh, the neuroemotional technique. I find that that really tends to assist a lot of patients, especially when we're talking about the fear aspect around the cancer. Mm. It's surprising not to have a patient walk out saying they feel better and not receive an email from them or a phone call telling you how much better they feel. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning, isn't it? It's just knowing that you're doing a good job. 
It does. But look, referring on to others, it's quite often, we, you know, we have psychologists we work with, oncologists we work with, physical therapists we work with, personal trainers we work with, we have personal trainers here. We have um, health and nutrition and fitness coaching here as well. Um, we work with everyone um, and additional GPs as well. So we try to create a um, patient treatment plan that has everyone involved. And that's really important. So when, when I spoke to you in an earlier podcast, one of the surprise bits of feedback that I got from people listening to the podcast was that um, practitioners, these oncologists, these, you know, this team around that are considered, you know, to be in the ivory tower, so to speak, when we're looking at medical models, um, they're referring their patients to you. So for, yeah. from a large percentage of practitioners, we're trying to refer patients to other people how why you how do these people how do these oncologists and so forth know about you how did how did you get known how did you get their respect how did you get them to listen how did you get to open you know the referral letters in the first place to then get this cyclic coming back again okay that, that that's a, is a really good question it's it crosses over to a few different areas um one of the questions I, if I can just pull that question a little bit um, into like stretch it out a bit here is that a lot of um, practitioners actually ask me, how do you build that relationship with the, um, the oncologist or, or the doctor? And the first relationship you need to focus on is really with the patient. You need to get to know the patient. Um, Quite often I sit down with my patient in their first visit and I spend time getting to know who they are, um, how, they've, how they've got where they are, you know, why are they here right now? What has led them to this point? Once I understand that, I can start to formulate a treatment plan or a care plan for them. And what we do, it's very much like a birthing plan in the same context. It's just situated around the cancer, the oncology aspect. And we go through what the GP is going to do. We go through what the oncologist is going to do. We go through what we're going to do. And we get that written down on paper for them. That way they can actually take that piece of paper and I get them to take it to the oncologist and I get them to sit down with the oncologist and say, okay, on here, is there any suggestions you have for me? Is there anything you'd like me to change? Is there anything you'd like me to add? Because that gives the patient back control. Many patients who are facing a condition, they often um, get controlled by the fear and we need to give them the control back. Mm. So by form formulating that, a clear outline of what we're going to do and what we're going to also possibly prescribe. Because in those many cases, if they, for example, have only recently been diagnosed with, with the um, disease or the cancer, they may not be under treatment yet you may not even know what chemotherapies or radiotherapy or surgery they're going to have yet. If that's the case, then we need to have that set up and we need to find out what they're going to be on. And we'll write that in there. We'll actually say to the oncologist, we need to know exactly what a patient's gonna be on so we can formulate a diet correctly and can ensure that no nutritional deficiencies occur and we can maximize those, those, the effectiveness of those drugs. And again, it goes back to the mechanism of action. How do we enhance? How do we inhibit? How do we address side effect? Mm -hmm. um, I think with that, 
keeping it very straightforward. Um, and also if once you understand what chemotherapies that that patient is actually on and you can want to co-prescribe alongside it, you can provide data and information alongside that so that in references for the patient to take to their oncologist so they can see that you have evidence-based practice and what you're intending to do is support the patient, not treat the patient's cancer. Mm-hmm. So the, the care program that you put together, you put that together in conjunction with their other practitioners? It depends if they've already started. Most haven't. And most won't have any care program in, in place at all. Um, I normally sit down, I write it with the, the patient um, and we work out who and where they're going to be going. Mm. Initially, we start with the people they already have that are familiar with them. Um, so if they've got a GP that they regularly see, um, they've already met their oncologist. Um, we will work with those people to start with mm-hmm. and then we'll move forward from there. Right. Okay. So at any stage, the patient is the one carrying the plan with them in their pocket, so to speak. Uh, right. And they can refer to that going, okay, I'm week four. Um, what's required here? This is where I need to be checking in with and so forth. Is that how it works That's out? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. correct. That's very empowering, it, I imagine. Well, they can see that you've, you've instantly created purpose for the patient. Yeah. You've given back control and they can see an, an end game. They can see where they're going. Mm-hmm. When you're telling them, look, we're going to run through a cycle and we're going to do possibly, uh, we're going to do a paxitaxel and we're going to maybe run that for four cycles at a high dose, or depending on how you respond with the first round, we might end up doing that over um, 12 cycles at a lower dose. That doesn't give them confirmation what they're going to do. They have no idea still. We need to set them up with structure so they've got an idea of where they're going to be heading. Mm. Once they know that, they're starting to make plans for the future. And when you have purpose, you want to live So for practitioners listening in to this today, if they think, oh, I love the idea of the patient care program, um, how, how can they make that? How can they get the information? How will they know what will happen? I mean, you know what will happen yourself as the practitioner directing your care, but how do they uh, connect with, or how do they, how do they integrate the other, other practitioners in the care program how will they know what the oncologist is doing at what week and how will they know um you know what the other care providers are providing in the program well if if you're sitting down to organize that with the actual patient themselves they're going to be taking that to the oncologist to the gp etc and it's very important that patient comes back and communicates with you what's happening next right they need and part of that care plan is to set up what is going to be happening in the future work out the questions to actually ask the oncologist and the gp um, the psychologist or whoever else they may be seeing um, to ensure that they're actually getting the correct care Um, if it's not as easy as you know, I'm just going to go and call the oncologist today. I've never spoken to you. And I want you to tell me all about the chemotherapy that you're giving my patient, et cetera, et cetera. That's not going to work. They're busy. 
it won't happen. But every patient, when they go through chemotherapy, for example, they will receive a, a sheet from that's based off their, their, you know, say, for example, New South Wales Health um, from the hospital. And that will give a plan of what the chemotherapy cycles will be, what they're expected to do. And that allows you to factor that into your treatment program. It's also important that when you initially hand that sheet to the patient with that plan and that outline of what you'd like to do, and they take it to their oncologist to talk about that the oncologist, you have your details written on there. And you also ask the um, patient to communicate with the GP. And in that letter, you may provide that you'd like to communicate with the oncologist in the future. Many times I see, it doesn't necessarily happen with the first one, it's the first time you've worked with that oncologist. Normally it's the second or third time. Um, they start to just copy you straight into the pathology and the pathology starts to come straight through to you. Nice. Um, with hospital-based pathology though, quite often the patient will have to ask for it and take it and then they will send it through to me. Okay. So the care plan, what I'm hearing you say is the care plan is a living document that you write up your bits and then you leave effectively columns open for the other practitioners to add their bits into that plan to empower the patient and, and give them a locus of control. That's correct. Nice. I like that. Okay. So um, working with the oncologists, yeah, uh, I asked the question earlier, why you? Uh, and I mean that in a very respectful way. But um, I guess what, I'm, what, I'm, what I would like is for practitioners listening to this that would like to do more of what you do. They want to, they want to be a, another steward when it comes to helping patients out there with cancer and making sure that they have the best, best care through there. Uh, how do you get your foot in the door with the oncologists and the other care team members? I know you said that, um, you know, can take the third time around before they'll take you seriously and CC you in on on what you need to know, but how did you go knock on doors? Did you go to the hospital and talk to people? Did you write letters? What, how did you get your foot in the door? Um, it really through the patients, the, the patient needs to, you need to write a, a letter. You need to show that you're setting the patient up within, uh, really within the medical scope as well. It's showing that you're not working against the perception for a lot of, in my, my experience, the perception for a lot of medical is that what we do is hocus pocus. Um, and to, to just go back to a discussion I literally had on Monday um, in my gym, one of the fellows that's been at my gym for a few years now as a general practitioner, as a GP, and we started talking, he asked me how I was going around going with COVID and, and he asked me how it's affected us. And I said, if it's in, impacted on anything, it's impacted on supply because many of our supplements and our nutraceuticals, et cetera, are unavailable. And he just had the idea of, oh, well, how could that be? And I said, well, many of them have surpassed testing. They have to be, the plants have to be grown. They have to have certain active constituents in it. And then they have to go through and make sure that they're actually stable throughout the manufacturing process so they have a therapeutic effect. And he was quite shocked to hear that, which he didn't understand that we weren't just shoving anything into that capsule or into that 
that bottle, we were actually caring about what we're putting in. And this is, this is a very strong um, point that needs to be understood by medical is that when we prescribe something, we actually do have a lot of data on this in this area. We do have a lot of research in this area on nutraceuticals and supplementation and dietary advice. We're not just taking over. And there is a perception that we tend to, if someone comes to see us, and, and there are cases where this has happened, but it shouldn't happen, where they think that the practitioner, the naturopath, is going to cure the cancer on their own. And, and that is not the case. The, the whole purpose is to work together. And one of the most important facts is stay to the fact, stay to the evidence-based practice, make it very clear. You know, in, when I write those letters and when I put that information in, once I know what chemotherapy drugs that patient is on, quite often I will write in there the, the pathways and mechanisms of action that those nutraceuticals will actually have and I'll tag into that some informational data for the, the oncologist as well. And that seems to be the key that gets me over the line. Mm. Um, once they have that data in there and they can see that I've looked at evidence-based practice, I've looked at research, I know why I'm prescribing it. They can't question it anymore. And they start to realize, hang on, this fellow actually knows what he's doing. He has the patient's best interests at heart. and He's trying to improve the outcome. And that's the goal. And when you hand it back to them and you say, look, this is what I love to do. And I actually want you to tell me if you're okay with it or not. Quite often they think, oh, hang on, I'm still in control. So they're not as scared or concerned that you're going to harm the patient. And normally it gains you a lot of respect. Mm. Um, a thought came to my mind, I argued, in my brain, as you were talking, do I ask the question or do I not ask the question? But I am, I'm going to ask the question. Um, if you got cancer, God forbid, would you yes. do chemotherapy, radiotherapy, based on what you've seen, what, what patients go through and knowing what you know, after all your years of experience? It depends on the cancer. If the cancer, you know, if the, the chemotherapies, if the level of effectiveness of the chemotherapy was extremely low then at this moment in time and how i'd respond if if that would happen and i hope it never does happen um i would i would make the decision that was best for me then if, if the re risk of having a chemotherapy um was actually how do i rephrase that if i actually had the cancer and surgery provided me with let's say a 99 percent chance of survival why would i put a chemotherapy in if the effectiveness of that chemotherapy was only going to be seven percent um if i was facing a condition where the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy showed a very high success rate then yes i would do it mm. i don't believe that you can use everything that's around us we can use efficiently and effectively we've just got to make sure that it's right for us at that point in time yeah. you know it, it's very much like it's most practitioners out there working in most areas would see metformin for example prescribe all the time all the time if you're slightly overweight or insulin resistance 
they don't change diet half the time they pump out a thousand two thousand um, milligrams of metformin straight away quite often though you will find that if you change diet or lifestyle that will reduce your blood sugar that will reduce your insulin resistance why would you prescribe metformin so i think it comes down to the fact of looking at the whole picture when you're prescribing any drug including a chemotherapy if you're looking at chemotherapy as a cleanup which a lot of times they do do you can have surgery remove the cancer and they'll pump you full of chemotherapy for you know several months um, that is to reduce your risk of having rogue cells supposedly it, it just depends on the aggressiveness of the cancer mm. Mm, good answer. It's a really hard question to answer, Angela. It's a really hard one because it's it's we're talking about a personal and b, um, it the we don't know the type of cancer. Yeah, my re I guess my reason for asking it really was that uh, some practitioners and it was probably really when the chemotherapeutics were just so so incredibly powerful it's like it's like having a nuclear bomb put into your body you know back in the earlier earlier days and and from that uh quite a few practitioners have gone absolutely will never have chemotherapeutics at all in my body will not have radiation in my body no matter what the cancer is i'll fight it naturally so i was just curious on your your well insight it, it, on it, it. look i actually think chemotherapy look, look chemotherapeutics are actually very very incredible drugs they're amazing what they can do but if you also look at the advancements in chemotherapy it's not that they've changed that much if we just look at nitrogen musters nitrogen musters for example you know came from um, mustard gas that were used in world war one and they weren't it wasn't until about 1944 i believe that they actually started to develop them into chemotherapeutic agents and and in that said how far have we advanced 80 years on we have a completely different understanding, yet they're still one of the most effective chemotherapy drugs available. Mm. Um, and they do save lives, but it has to be a person's individual choice, what they choose to go through mm. um, and how they handle it. We should have control of, of, of our health. Mm. And if someone chooses not to do chemotherapy or they choose to do chemotherapy, that has to be their decision. Yeah. Yeah. What role do you see that, or do you find that you play? Do you have patients that come to you with a diagnosis and say, I don't want to do any chemotherapeutics. I don't want to do any radiation, no matter what. And I want to do it all naturally. And I'm putting my entire confidence in you and your skill set. Where do you sit with that? Um, no, for example, sorry, that the chemotherapeutics are going to be beneficial. Um, it is very, I, it is, it is, as tough as it might sound, in cases, if that patient is turning its back completely on medical, then my concern is they're not going to get the medical care that they require. And they will require certain testing, they will require um, certain health um, and psychological health assessments and treatments or surgery or something. Um, then I don't know how much I can help them. My job is to work. I'm a complementary healthcare practitioner. Complementary means that we complement the healthcare system and it's all working as a team. If someone doesn't want to play ball, 
um, you can't force them. No. But you also have to decide whether you want to try, are you just going to be fight, fighting an uphill battle? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, moving on from that, you've mentioned team a few times, and I'm just curious, one, just a, one focus on the team. Um, how does a patient develop their care team? Does the, is, it, is it the patient's uh, responsibility to go and find the physio, to go and find the naturopath, to go find the oncologist, to go find you know, their psychologist? What, what is, is, it, is it down to them or is it, do you guys network and have a little web uh, or a wide web, to be honest, um, of support that you can recommend? We, we already have the, the networking here. Um, if they need it, but we also want them to be comfortable. So if they've already got a physiotherapist, for example, or a massage therapist or a psychologist who's comfortable with working with that, we will keep them with them. Mm -hmm. If they, they don't have that support network or they feel they want another opinion, then we will ultimately try to set them up for that. Mm. Um, it's important that they have everyone on board. Mm. And, and quite often if there's, a lot of controversy around treatment, for example, mm. um, and they're very unsure of themselves, sometimes it's great to get another opinion. Mm. And you should never always just settle for the first person you walk into. And I, and I say that to many of my patients, I will give you some advice, but I may not be the right person for you either. Mm. You might not get along with me. You may not like my bluntness sometimes. If you don't feel that I'm right for you, that's absolutely fine. We will find someone that you feel is right for you. So when you set up their team, it has to be the right people. And it's, it's always remembering you may not be the right person for them either. Mm. So with, um, in, in one of our earlier podcasts, we were talking about how you found the doctors that you work with in your area and the specialists that you work with in, in your area i mean actually in vicinity where, you, where your clinic is in sydney yeah. uh and you did a information evening or a presentation there was something that you you ran and that was incredibly successful are you able to talk about that yes yes it was a few years ago now it was. um so yeah what I, I normally would do is i would normally um quite often i would set up information at evenings um I've done a few of them over the years, but I haven't, I haven't done anything in the recent, recent last couple of years. Um, it, definitely. Look, we would normally, one of the things would be is normally we'd get contact with the GPs or the doctors somehow and we'd go down and we would talk to them. We'd, we'd provide information to them on what we do. Quite often I've been lucky enough to be asked to, to speak at these, these events and, and that's normally how it initiates a, a patient is getting great results. And sometimes you get that one doctor who's quite intrigued on how is this person's blood sugar improving? How is, you know, the testosterone going up? And they'll normally start to inquire more. And when they're seeing that pathology or that blood work, they're real numbers to them. Mm. That means a lot, means something is, is, is working. And quite often that has led to me being able to, to talk at these events. Um, I also would go around and talk at gyms a lot mm. because I think while we, I might do a lot of oncology at the end of the day, I don't want to see cancer patients either. I want to see people well, that they're trying to maintain their health and they never get cancer. Mm. 
or reducing that risk factor. Yeah. So I will go to gyms and I will do talks. Um, I do, I offer a, um, another service. We use a, a measuring device and a body composition analyzer called the InBody. And, and this allows us to actually monitor the person's muscle, body weight, fat, et cetera, but very similar to the VLA concept. In saying that, that is a huge in because it allows me to go in and educate people on their body composition as well. And that sort of sets you up because with this device, I can monitor phase angle, for example, too. So we can really see the health of the individual mm. live. And, and, and that really does play a massive role in, in educating my, um, the, the community. Yeah. And if you can educate the community, you're going to build a reputation within that community and, and people are going to trust you and you become part of their healthcare system. And then you start working back and forth with the doctors, with the psychologists, with the chiros and physios and the PTs and, and, and it becomes a team effort. You know, I, I, patients get excited to come into me and tell me about, you know, the other practitioners they've seen and what they've done. Yeah. So with, with the uh, team effort, obviously family and friends need to be on the team as well for the, you know, the carers that the patients have. So with uh, how, how do you handle that? I remember, you know, in practice and treating cancer patients and some of them had had the most amazingly supportive families and partners that would come into the consultations with them uh, for other uh, patients they were struggling with the family because the family had expectations that they would go full out and would you know go on the diet and do the radical fast and do all of those things but the person just didn't want to do those uh, you have other you know where where the patient just was quite happy to die just quite happy to go look I've done my time you know in the older patients quite happy to have done my time this is, this is my ticket out of here um, but I'm only doing this for my family how do you handle um, all of that. Look, mental health is, you know, an essential consideration for the patient, but it's often forgotten about for the care or the family and even the friends. Um, people tend to forget that while a patient is sort of undergoing treatment and recovery, um, people around them are becoming exhausted. Mm. Um, you know, for example, I guess if you, we made it personal, let's say your mother uh, was going through six, six months of, um, of treatment mm. that results in you sort of being a caretaker and includes taking her normally to appointments shopping for her prepping her food mental support listening to the complaints etc um, but then you also need to work care for your family emotional strain on yourself and then when she's recovered or she passed you're expected to continue on like nothing's ever happened you know quite often um, I encourage the family um, to also come in or refer them on to um, the right service mm. that sort of supports them so they don't really set themselves up for illness as well. Mm. What do you think about having a dedicated family or carer care package that you could offer in your practice? Would that be appealing? Uh, it's, it's, it's a fantastic idea. We have a kind of a little, I guess, a bastardized approach to that here. We, um, we do sort of encourage those, um, family members to come in. We try to set up healthy diets, lifestyle factors, um, 
psychology support aspects for them as well, particularly when you see them drained. Mm. Mm. But they're a great idea. It's a it's a fantastic um, option. Yeah, it's it is exhausting. My my uh, dad died of cancer over eleven months, and uh, you know by the end of it, and I hear this over and over again, so I don't have any um, difficulty saying it. But by the end of it, you're pleased when they go. You know, you're yes. pleased that it's over for them. It's over for everybody else. Um, and you just, you know, you're glad to see the end of it. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way at all. It's just how hard it is. I, I experienced uh, one of my patients particularly, she had pancreatic cancer. And when I saw her, she was quite unwell. And they literally had told her, you know, you'll, you'll go within the six months now. She was actually already... 12 months over where she should have been. And the survival rate for pancreatic cancer is, is really around 1% post a six month period. And she went on for, um, she ended up working right up until a week before she died. And that was for four years following with me. She was with me for, and she ran her business and she was very busy. But in that last week, I remember calling her and speaking to her on the phone and she wasn't, she wasn't well, she's in hospital she'd gone downhill quite quickly. And I, and I said to her, I'll be honest with you. I said, I actually, I, I think your time's done. I said, I think you're ready to go. And she just, this big sigh of relief. And she said to me, thank you, Stuart. She goes, I, I, um, oh, it brings a tear to my eye still. Mm -hmm. But, um, she, she said, thank you, Stuart. She goes, I'm, it, it's nice to know I can, maybe I can let go now. Yeah. It's okay. I can stop fighting. Yeah. And we ended up after that, we ended up talking about all these things. And she suddenly started talking about all her childhood to me. And I remember I rang her in my lunch break and I remember I ran over my lunch break, nearly 45 minutes into another appointment. And she just started telling me all about her life and just mm -hmm. everything came out. And at the end of it, she said, Oh, it's such a good conversation. It's the first conversation I've had with someone in years that isn't around my cancer. Wow. And she goes, I've just remembered. And she just spoke about her life like she was, that was the pivotal, mo pivotal moment that she started to realise, I've lived my life. Mm. I'm done. Yeah. And her daughter called me a few weeks after she had passed. And her daughter was so grateful. She said those few days before she died, she goes, she just spoke about her life, everything suddenly. She goes, she was a different person. Mm. And I told her, the, the conversation that I'd had with her. And she was so grateful for that conversation because I think everyone was scared to say it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. Sometimes we live a life. We will all die at some point and we'll all die of something. Mm. Um, you know, and she was grateful for those additional four and five years that she got of a condition that has a survival rate of 1% at six months. Mm. It's fantastic. It's functional. Yeah. Yeah, and that was well. a lot of that was thanks to integrative healthcare. Yeah. But you have to give permission sometimes. It's okay. And it's okay to feel relief when a, a, a person that we're close to passes away. You know, because it is hard. It is mm -hmm. very hard. That, that story brought a tear to your eye. Uh, obviously, dealing with loss uh, of your patients as a practitioner, do you have a self-care routine, something you adhere to, to, to cope and manage with that? Oh, it falls into the category of burnout, doesn't it? Um, 
Yeah, uh, look, it, it really depends how you set yourself up. Um, most people, when they, they ask me what I do, and I still remember when I set up my clinic here in Miranda, I decided to change the structure because before that I was working ridiculous hours. I was getting to work at 7 at 7.30 in the morning. I was starting with the first patient. And most times I wasn't leaving till 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And I was exhausted. Mm. And I decided I couldn't do that anymore. And I still remember it was the day a fellow climbed the Sydney Harbour Bridge in protest of um, something to do with, it turned out it was something to do with his son or some custody issue. And I was stuck in this traffic for hours and hours and hours. And a, a trip that used to take me about 25 minutes in the morning, I spent four and a half hours in traffic. And I had to ring a patient to cancel. And the patient yelled at me because I'd been waiting two and a half months to get in to see me. And I got abused for it. And I got called all the profanity you can imagine. And I remember walking to the clinic that day and I said to um, my receptionist at the time, that's it. I need a change because I was at burnout. So I needed to, to make, a, make a significant change. So I actually went over and I looked over for another clinic and I found the clinic I'm in now. Closer to me at the time, it was only five to 10 minutes from me. Um, it was easy to get to. I could drive home at lunchtime if I needed to. And I decided to go smaller. I wanted to go smaller because I needed to find something that worked for me. And I decided to take the middle of the day off. So I will work through to around about one o'clock and I'll be back at work between three and four in the afternoon. And I'll have, during that middle of the day, I'll have lunch and I'll go to the gym and train for an hour or so. And I'll come back and I'll work for a few hours. And that works for me. That really works for me. It, it provides me with energy. I come back in the afternoon, I'm full of beans. Um, and people always ask me every day. I nearly get asked the question, why do you have so much energy? It's, it's 5.30 in the afternoon. And I believe it's because I, I needed to put myself first. As a practitioner, we, we tend to put everyone else first, but we need to put ourselves first. And that also comes down to ensuring that you, you set yourself up correctly. Your business, you're watching your metrics, you're ensuring this financial, financial stability. Um, you're looking after your personal life because only then can you add to someone else's life. Um, and that's really, that's really how I tend to do it. Mm -hmm. I've always admired when I heard you first talk about how you take the middle of the day off. I've always admired that. I thought what a great way to go, you know, just have a breather and even, even just to take the pressure out. So many of us, we work office hours. When do you get mm. to do the things where you need to go to the bank or the post office or, you know, all of those little funny things that you've got to do in life, you know, you, yes. you, you know, and, and so it just takes the pressure off knowing that you actually have that freedom as well. And I imagine. But Angela, when I first did that, I was told by my family, I was told by friends, I was told by other practitioners, it was a stupid idea. It would destroy my business. I would not be successful doing that. Yet I look at the books and I look at where I'm at and we've just had this whole COVID situation. And here I am desperately trying to find an appointment for someone in three months time. Mm. It works. Yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. And do you know yeah. what I like too, is you, you draw a boundary and you say, no, that is my time off. So even though you, you know, you could slip that person into your lunch break, 
there, you know, it's not. And I think that that is admirable. If I need to, if I tell someone you need to eat healthy, well, I have to eat healthy. Hmm. If I tell someone to exercise, I will exercise. You know, it can't be the pot calling the kettle black. Angela, it, you need to follow through. You represent what you do. Everything from, from unfortunately, right down to image, everything about you represents what you do. Mm-hmm. And you have to look after yourself first. And, and many of the time as a practitioner, I always stop, look at myself and I say, am I happy with me? Because I can't tell you, there's always a day, there's always a time that I'm going to stuff up. Mm. I will. Mm. But then I have to come back from that and I have to look at it and I have to go, how do I improve it? Yeah. yeah. Because if I don't catch myself out and own it, then I'm not going to make change. And I've become relatable with my patients that way too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm happy to see me today. Yes. Yes. Awesome, Stuart. I'm conscious of your time. I know this is eating into your, excuse the pun, eating into your lunch break. Um, Standing on the shoulders of giants, you've given us some great, great advice in the past. Any advice you have for practitioners who want to walk in your shoes or stand on your shoulders? Believe in yourself. Corny as it is, believe in yourself, put yourself first, make yourself happy. And then you can follow your passion. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Best Practice Podcast. We hope you found today's discussion helpful in your own professional journey. Sharing our experiences as practitioners is such a great way to develop together. So before you go, why not take a moment to share this episode with someone that you know will value it. And whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify or any of the other platforms, remember to like and review the episode too. We read all of your comments and would love to hear your suggestions for future topics. Head to metagenics.com.au for downloads, links and other business support materials. Standing on the shoulders of giants, supporting you in creating your best practice.